Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, which you will find in the New Testament section of our few Bibles on page 8 or on the screen. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Oh God, tell us what we need to hear and show us what we ought to do to obey Jesus Christ. Matthew 9. Verse 9, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. And as Jesus sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if this is your first Sunday with us, we do want you to know what we've been up to uh, over these next four Sundays. We started last week. We will conclude on World Communion Sunday. We've been reminding ourselves as a church of what we just heard in the children's message, that God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved. And then God as a missionary God, sent his son Jesus and gave him that commission. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has now sent the church into the world to continue God's work. There is this wonderful passage in Matthew that talks about what it will look like in the end, where Jesus says a time will come when people will gather from the north and the south and the east and the west, and there is this huge vision of people at a banquet sitting at the table. And that's what we've been emphasizing. We want to reconnect as a congregation with the mission that Jesus has given to the church. And we heard it illustrated in the children's message, and now we hear it illustrated powerfully in our text. I remember in July 2015, and also in June of 2019, I had the the wonderful, wonderful privilege, the gift of joining several of you on a trip to the Holy Land. And uh, I see Dr. KK is here with us this morning, and I'm looking to him because when we went in 2019, he was our fearless leader. And we took about 27 folks from our church, and we, we learned so much from him as we traveled up and down the Holy Land. And 
you know, you're, you're going to be, you're, you're sick of me referencing that moment, but it was so important for me and my journey. And I want for more of us to have that opportunity. So I'm dreaming that maybe in the next 18 to 24 months, we will, uh, we will gather another group and we will visit the Holy Land. The trip had, a, had an impact on my life. And uh, I remember very distinctly visiting the small fishing village of Capernaum. And uh, when you compare Capernaum to Jerusalem in terms of somewhere to visit, of course, most people go to Jerusalem because it's the exotic city, it's the big city. Capernaum is this small fishing village. And it was while I was there that it dawned on me as I was reading the Gospels while I was on the trip that Jesus spent the bulk of his time not in the big city. He spent the bulk of his time in these little villages, these little hamlets. And so while we were there, as you walk into the, what's left of the city of Capernaum, the village of Capernaum, that's the sign that you see as you go in. Capernaum, the town of Jesus. And we didn't read my, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1, of course, but if you read chapter 9 and verse 1, these are the words that you will see. After getting into a boat, he crossed the sea. Of course, we know it's the Sea of Galilee, and he came to his town. And so you have Capernaum, his town, the town of Jesus. And the wonderful thing about Capernaum is that this is the town that most likely Peter lived in or was from. There's a, a huge statue of, of the Apostle Peter. Jesus went into that synagogue and healed on the Sabbath day. And after he walked out of the synagogue, he went right across to the home of Peter's mother-in-law, where she was deathly ill with some kind of a fever. And we're told that Jesus healed her right there in Capernaum. The people you're seeing there are people from our church who were on the trip. Capernaum is where Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John. They were fishermen, and Jesus said, I have bigger fish for you to catch. Come follow me. And you may not know this, because it's not clear from the reading, that what we just read today, it happened in Capernaum. Big things come in small packages, right? We tend to overlook little things, and we have the bias for the big things. But the people Jesus called didn't come from the metropolitan cities of the world. Little villages and hamlets. Matthew records that as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up, and he followed him. And what I love about this, and this is one of the qualities of Jesus that I love and I know you love, is that when Jesus sees us, he sees us in a whole other way than the way we see each other. We look at our, each other's clothing. We look at sort of the markers of what we think are poverty or prosperity or how elite or how educated, how fit, how this or that. When Jesus looks at us, he doesn't see any of those things. He doesn't look at our wealth. He doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our successes, our failures. What Jesus sees, he sees our needs, 
And Jesus sees our worth. And friends, oh, how we need to learn that. And then Jesus spoke two powerful words to this man. And there are words that he's speaking to you this morning. Follow me. Follow me. And Matthew, I believe, would have understood these words as a call to discipleship. And that's why we're told he got up. Luke said he got up from his tax booth and left everything. Can you imagine that? And followed him just like that. Matthew woke up that morning a tax collector, went to work as a tax collector, and by the end of that day, he went to bed as a follower of Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. And without a question, if you did the economics, if you did the math, Matthew lost a lot of money that day when he left the toll booth to follow Jesus. But what I love about Matthew is that he not only opened his heart to Jesus, he opened his home to Jesus. And later that evening, Matthew organized a party. I don't know how he did it on such short notice, but he got the word out. He called his friends, and they came to his home, and then he invited Jesus. And we read in chapter 9 and verse 10 that as Jesus sat at dinner in the house, many, this is how Luke, Matthew describes them, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. And I remember years ago, there were churches that were encouraging what's called a Matthew party, encouraging new believers to invite their friends to a party. Why did he do it, though? Well, in my mind, I think of two reasons. I think Matthew really wanted to thank Jesus for sort of opening his eyes to the reality that there is something bigger and something better than collecting taxes and collecting tolls, that there's a bigger vision for your life, Matthew. And Matthew caught on to that. And I think he wanted to thank Jesus. I think there's a second reason. I think Matthew wanted to make sure that his friends met the man who changed his life. And maybe he was hoping that at the end of the party, some of them would say, I see what you're saying, Matthew. How do I sign up? While I was still living in Durham, North Carolina, years and years ago, I had the opportunity, which is a, was a highlight for me. I knew that the Billy Graham Center was in Asheville, North Carolina, and I was you know, down there in Durham, and the church I was attending decided to send Judith and me to this evangelism training event. And we went to what's called the Cove, the Billy Graham Training Center. And I still remember one of the first presentations they gave that day. And this is where I first heard this. The presenter said that new believers are more excited and willing to invite their friends to Christ and to share their story of how Jesus changed them. And I said, yeah, that makes sense. But then the presenter said, the longer they become part of a congregation, they lose their friends. And they become more involved in sort of the inner church programming. And over time, that muscle, that good news muscle, that if I can use the dreaded E word, 
that evangelistic muscle, it begins to atrophy. And pretty soon, I hear people saying, I don't have any friends who don't go to church. Aren't you glad, though, that Matthew, at this point, hadn't traded in his friends for a religious meeting? When Jesus saw Matthew and his friends, he saw spiritually hurting people. And so, when they invited Jesus to come to Matthew's house, Jesus said yes. I was telling Judith the other, just a, actually, I was telling her last night, I still remember one day I was out in the backyard doing some work, and my neighbor came over. Now, this is a man we've been praying for. And he came over and he said, Ray, do you want to come over and have a drink with me? And I don't know where my mind was that day. I said, Bob, I, I don't think I can do that. And I look back on that, and I felt so horrible. I was so engrossed in my thing. I don't know if I was some, doing something in the garden, I was just cutting grass, I don't know why, but I was in the backyard doing some work. And Bob said, when you're done, would you come over? You want to come over? And I told him, no. And I looked back on that and I said, Judith, I just wish I had said yes to him. Now, it didn't injure our friendship. He never invited me again. And then he moved away. But Jesus said yes. I wish I had said yes that day. You notice what happened when the Pharisees saw Jesus? Because this is the wonderful thing about the eyes. I want us to use our eyes to notice people. When the Pharisees saw Jesus and Matthew and his friends, they saw human scum. They said, to the disciples of Jesus, why does your teacher, and you can hear implied in that question, if your teacher is such a holy person, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Implied in the question is, Jesus is a fraud. If he really was somebody of holy stature, he wouldn't be found with those kinds of people, and I find that so sad. You ought to find this very sad. Last Sunday, as we were gathered here, we read from Luke 15. And Jesus said that when a sinner, and if I, I, hope, I, I hope we can just use that word. I hope we're not afraid of using the word sinner. It's all over the story that we just read. When a sinner repents, when a sinner, a lost person is found, we're told that the angels in heaven rejoice. Well, these religious folks weren't in the mood to rejoice. Instead, they were busy condemning Jesus and his friends, and they despised Jesus for frolicking with outcasts, with these disreputable people. You know this very well from Luke 18, where Jesus tells a parable where two people went to the temple to pray. You remember that story? One was a Pharisee, the other one was what? a tax collector, and they were both praying to God. Do you remember what the, tax, what the Pharisees prayed? He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other thieves, rogues, 
adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So the question we must ask ourselves is, why, why the vitriol? Why the social animus toward these people? Well, many of you read the Bible enough to know that tax collectors in that time were considered traitors. They worked for the Roman government. The Roman government had the nation of Israel under their thumb. People wanted freedom. That's why they had so much, so much anticipation in the coming of the Messiah. Tax collectors then regularly defiled themselves by hanging out with Gentiles, lawbreakers. Tax collectors were considered unscrupulous. They were dishonest. They charged more than they were required to charge, and then they would keep the additional profits for themselves. So if you were a tax collector, you were Jewish, you were a tax collector, you were scum. You were an outcast. You were, you were the, the worst of the worst. And so it's quite amazing when Jesus was in, was in uh, Jericho that you had this diminutive fellow by the name of Zacchaeus who gets up into a tree. He's a tax collector. He wants to see Jesus and Jesus saw him also and said, I'm coming to your house today. And you got the same reaction from the people. He's going to the house of a sinner. Friends, I think this is a, is a wonderful example of how bias works. There's something about our brain. Our brains are wired to take shortcuts so that we can arrive very quickly at a conclusion on something. And today we call that stereotypes. So if you're walking through the airport and you see a man or a woman coming toward you who is maybe 6'10", 6'11", and you're in the city of Chicago, you're going to say, I wonder if they play for the, the sky, or I wonder if they play for the bulls. You're going to quickly reach that. I wonder if they're playing college basketball somewhere. Because in your mind, your mind quickly runs to a conclusion. You're tall, therefore. You're black, therefore. You're Asian, therefore. Our minds quickly run to conclusion. That's just how the human mind works. Bias. And because of their religious bias, you would never see a Pharisee breaking bread with a tax collector. You would never see a Pharisee sitting down with a Gentile. You avoided them. And I think it happened in the other way too. When Jesus heard what these religious leaders were saying, Jesus gave to us and to the church. And so think about it. When Matthew was being read, the church was already around. So the church, this is a gift to the body of Christ. Jesus gave these two powerful gifts to the body of Christ that if we were to follow them would change our lives and would change the lives of other people and would radicalize and change the church. The first thing Jesus said, this is a massive principle, brothers and sisters, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What does he mean by that? The sick are the toll collectors. The sick are the people who are broken with various addiction, addictions. The sick are you and me. The so-called healthy are those who think they've got it together 
And they have the audacity to oppose Jesus, and the physician is Jesus. So if we were to take a time evaluation, take a, an evaluation of Jesus' time, where do you think Jesus would spend the bulk of his time? Would he spend the bulk of his time with the religious community? Or would he spend the bulk of his time with the sick community? Yeah, he would. He would spend his time walking about and ministering to people. That's a massive principle for us. If we were to take stock of the time that we expend as a community, how much of the time do we spend on us as a community here versus how much time do we spend with those who are sick? Look at your time. Look at my time. I already told you how I messed up that day. I was so busy doing my thing. I had this opportunity to visit with a neighbor that I've been praying for, and I told him no. I have a feeling I'm not the only one who has that problem. But here's the second massive principle that Jesus gives to the church. Jesus says to the religious leaders, go back to school. Now, this was a slap in the face for them because these leaders, they claim to know the law upside and down, inside and out. And Jesus says, you need to go back to school. You need to go back to rabbinic school and learn what this verse means. And he quoted from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. Jesus says, this is what God desires. God says, I desire mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And if you read the context of Hosea chapter 6, what you will find there is that these religious people of Hosea's day, they were so busy churning out the rituals and the sacrifices and the sprinkling of the oil and the water, and they were kind of doing their religious rituals when in fact... All around them, all kinds of injustices were happening, both in their lives and in the community. The prophets were prophesying lies. The kings were oppressing. And yet they were saying, oh God, we love you, we love you, we love you. God says, I don't want your sacrifices. What I want is I want your mercy. Show mercy. Show mercy. These people had memorized Hosea 6. 6. And they knew it. Jesus says, go back and learn it. They knew it, but they didn't know how to apply it. And I'm telling you, friends, we are in danger. The danger of a religious life is that over time, it can be all external. It's all head knowledge. And we're, we're having some new Sunday school classes today, and I believe in knowledge. I believe in learning. But I also believe that it doesn't stop with just learning new facts. It means then what we learn we must figure out, how do I integrate this into my lived experience? What good is it to have all this knowledge and still come up short with love for God and love for people? If you read later on in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus said to the Pharisees, and no wonder they wanted to kill him. In fact, at the end of Matthew 21, they said, we've got to figure out a way to kill this guy. Matthew 21, he says, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now that should make us shake. The tax collectors and the sinners. So I want to close with this picture. I hope you can see it. It's a picture of one of Rembrandt's most famous 
paintings of the crucifixion. He, you may have seen Rembrandt's portrayal of the prodigal coming home. And in all of his paintings, he has this wonderful ability to play with darkness and light. And you can see that in this famous picture. And when you look at it, you can see the you can see all the characters that you would expect to be there. Of course, Jesus is in the middle. On either side, to his left and to his right, you find the two thieves. And then notice the people on the ground. The thief, too, that's on the right side of Jesus. The way that person is dressed, you can imagine that that's a religious person. And then beneath the thief on Jesus's, I guess it's Jesus's left, depending on how you're looking at it, are the soldiers who are gambling to see who will earn and get the, 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 the leftover rags of the people who are being crucified. At the foot of the cross, where Jesus is, you'll notice that you'll see the women. There's one man there, and we assume that's John, but the rest of it is all the women. Where are the disciples? And then you look at the other thief to the right of Jesus, and you see another set of people there. There's a man on a horse, but you look at that man standing off in the corner next to the horse, and that's Rembrandt. And he's famous for painting himself into his pictures. And I've been meditating on that picture, and I said, why would Rembrandt put himself there? Well, first of all, we know he's not heckling. He's not joining the crowd. You, you look at the, 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 the face of Rembrandt, his portrait of himself, and what you see is more shock and horror. And maybe what Rembrandt is saying is, I had a part in putting him on that cross, but I'm also standing here because he is the one who has saved me. And the little that I know about Rembrandt is that after his wife died, his life did turn in a direction that was profoundly more spiritual, profoundly more rooted in Christ. And that's why many of his paintings then reflect these scenes from Jesus' life. Like Matthew, he's testifying to the fact that I too am a sinner. And I'm too, I too, I'm trusting in Jesus as the one who died to save me from my sin. Matthew, Rembrandt, seeing themselves, themselves as sinners. When we lose that sense of what the Savior did for us, then we're going to fall into the Pharisaic trap of quickly condemning and overlooking people and uh, being influenced by our biases. Friends, as we close this morning, I think it would be foolish for us to ignore Jesus' philosophy for ministry. If you didn't get a chance to read the short article that I submitted in the newsletter this past week, I would encourage you to take a look at it. I wrote in Thursday's newsletter about the Pew Research Center and the report that they gave as they projected the ongoing decline of religion in America. And I know our mainline congregations across this nation, many of them are struggling and they're dying. People are worried that no one's coming and filling our buildings like they used to back in the day. And what's going on? What are we supposed to do? And I would encourage you, my friends, to think long and hard about the, the philosophy of Jesus' ministry, that Jesus was very relational, not programmatic. 
Jesus was very invitational, and he then met people on their terms where they were and engaged with them. The challenge that we have as mainline congregations is that we are so embedded in programs, and programs are good, and at one time, for a different time in our culture, when our culture was much more religious and much more attuned to participating in a church, our programs were wonderful, and now we're building all these programs, we're running all these programs, and who's showing up? Who's showing up? It's mostly the convinced. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said, it's not the well who need a physician, but it's the sick. And if we continue to deviate from that philosophy of ministry, our churches will continue to weaken. Churches that will go out and befriend and invite and meet with and be part of the brokenness of people's lives. And the thing you've got to understand, friends, and I, I know this for a fact, people are searching for God. They're just not sure if they want this, but they're searching for God. And I want you, I want us to try on the philosophy of Jesus. Open up your space. Open up your life and engage. Are we introducing our friends to Jesus? When was the last time you told your story, your story to someone and just say, hey, I just want to, if you have a moment, I want to share with you how Jesus changed my life. I encourage us, friends, to see people the way Jesus sees them. And I know we're busy people. I was busy that day, and I still feel horrible about it. I was so busy that day, I didn't make time for Bob. But make space in your life for people. Have a meal with them. Invite them to follow Jesus. Really shift the energy in your life away from the heavy church programming that we're trying to do and focus on how do I engage with the people who most likely won't show up here. Show them the love and the mercy of Jesus. May God help us. May God help us as we continue to be the church in an increasingly changing culture. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen.